Hello, this is Alay Nagaram, the podcast that explores urbanism on and along the sea. I am Niranjana, your host and the producer of this podcast. I thank the Leverhulme Trust, the LSE Department of Geography and Environment and LSE Research and Innovation for funding and supporting this podcast. In its first series, the podcast will feature academic research on the coastline of Tamil Nadu in southeastern India. This series is edited by Ten Narasu and its artwork designed by Ari Varagan, both artists based in Chennai. Hi Tamara, uh, thank you for joining us today at the podcast. So it's an introduction to our listeners. We have with us today Tamara Fernando, PhD candidate in history at the University of Cambridge in the UK. She completed her BA in history and literature at Harvard University and MPhil in early modern history at Cambridge as a Harvard Cambridge fellow in 2017. Her research focuses on pearl fisheries in the Indian Ocean, including the Persian Gulf, the Gulf of Mannar and the Mergui archipelago in southern Burma. Today we will be talking about the biodiverse waters that flow between the coasts of northwestern Sri Lanka and southeastern India, Tamil Nadu. But I'll let Tamara introduce the geography herself. So yeah, please do introduce yourself and uh, the geography that you are interested in um, researching, Tamara. Thank you. And you, you did great. So the broader project, as you mentioned, is an environmental and labor history of natural pearling that's multi-sided. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about what it means to do that kind of comparative work, if that's of interest. But I guess the um, site we want to be discussing today pertains to the Gulf of Mannar, Mannaram, the thin strip of water between South India and Ceylon. So since we have listeners and we don't have a map, um, I think maybe one of the easiest ways to think about this, I think sometimes there's an idea of the island of what was Ceylon in my period, Sri Lanka now is sort of off the southern tip of India. But we're actually thinking about the island hugging up to the coast. So this is the body of water that is below what we would call Ram Setu or Adams Bridge. Um, it's a chain of islands that links the geography of Sri Lanka with India. So you have the island of Rameswaram, Manar Island on the Ceylon side, and a set of very, very shallow, constantly changing, dancing islands in between. And below that is a rather protected body of water in comparison to, say, the Park Bay in the, to the north, which is much more exposed to the elements and a lot less sheltered, which then affects the environmental and ecological stories we are telling. So it's a 30-mile stretch, um, a kind of scattered land bridge, which is the closest point of contact between India and Sri Lanka, it's a very charged one because of that. Um, anybody who reads sort of newspapers either in Tamil Nadu or Sri Lanka knows that um, territoriality, sovereignty, the politics of space tends to get very mixed up and muddled um, in sites like this. And I think maybe, maybe another thing to say about the site is that, as you mentioned, it's a rich site in terms of biodiversity, but it's also a very richly layered site sort of culturally and in historical memory. So we might think whether we're thinking about, say, the Ramayana and thinking of um, this being a, a land bridge that is memorialized as a place where Ravana or Rama crosses from India to Sri Lanka. 
we might think about say Muslim or Malay cultures making reference to Adam crossing it. So it's called Adam's Bridge, uh, making his way to Siripad or Adam's Peak or the mountain in the center of Sri Lanka. So it's really a space that's embedded in many different kinds of cosmologies, cultures and languages. Um, and I, I hope that's something we can maybe talk about during, during our conversation today. Thank you, Tamara, for that uh, introduction. I actually did not know that about uh, Adam being having a specific cultural historical significance. I just assumed it would be like a colonial officer's name or something, as is usually the case. Um, could you tell us a bit about that as well? What is the period you're researching and uh, why that period? Yes, absolutely. So I study the late 19th and early 20th century. And really what, what really fascinates me about the Gulf of Mannar is um, the pearl fishery. So we kind of have a broad outline geologically or ecologically of what this space is like. But what I'm very drawn to is um, the pars or parai, or in Sinhalese what we would call gal parai, the, the limestone shoals underwater that harbored thousands and thousands of the species of oyster, which now we would call Pinkara fucata. We might say sippi or mutu sippi. As I mentioned, this is really a space of plural languages, um, which for several centuries, stretching back at least 500 years before the common era, um, produced beautiful pearls, so luxury commodities, which were in circulation, certainly in the region, so both in Ceylon and South India, um, in courtly cultures, diplomatic, mercantile circles, but also much, much further afield. Um, so that's the context. So I'm, I, I study pearl fisheries from an environmental and labor history perspective. But specifically, I study the 19th century, which is when um, Ceylon and the opposite coast, so the, the South Indian coast, are both under... British colonial control. And it really marks a kind of turning point for the fisheries in terms of a few things. First, the scaling up of the intensity of fishing. So if we were to tabulate harvests over the 19th century, this is really the most intense period. Um, the number of oysters that are removed from the seafloor trebles if we take, say, the 1850s compared to the 1890s. Some of the largest fisheries that the Gulf of Manar ever sees. So in 1906, for instance, within three weeks, there are 81 million oysters removed from the ocean floor. Um, it's also a time that is very innovative in terms of new technologies that are being tried in terms of fishing. It sees new scientific theories about pearl formation, about particular kinds of maritime labor. So for me, it's a very interesting place from which to study the, the very, very long history of the fishery. Wow, 500 years before the common era, you said, right? Or did I hear that uh, wrong? No, no, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, one problem, well, a problem or a challenge rather, I should say is that um, oftentimes pearls and oysters do not correlate neatly. So even if I was to take, say, the earliest Vedas, the, the Rig Veda or the sort of earliest extant Sanskrit texts that we have, we have references to pearls. And most likely those are pearls coming from the Gulf of Manar, but they don't say, you know, this many oysters were extracted from this reef. Um, but this is 
like the Persian Gulf. I mean, some this is a, a several thousand year old history. Mm. Oh, that's super interesting. But I wasn't thinking so much about the Vedas as about the Sangam literature, which you hear much more often growing up in the opposite coast, as you said, uh, in the Tamil Nadu coast. But can you also uh, talk about if this kind of a legend, like uh, growing up you hear this as almost like legendary stories all the time about the richness of the Gulf of Mannar and how it was the foundation of many ancient kingdoms and pearl as well as other uh, chunk and other types of fisheries are talked about in all of these literatures you hear. Does it also appear in other uh, language literatures of the area like Sinhala or Malayalam or or it could be through trade routes with Southeast Asia and so on? Yes, definitely. Um, if we were to take, say, in Pali literature, if we were to take um, chronicles that are attempting to narrate the history of um, the island, so a chronicle like the Mahavamsa, will give stories in Pali of very, very ancient uh, kingdoms on the island. So King Vijaya supposedly sent pearls as tribute to his father-in-law across the Gulf of Mannar. Um, another king named Devanampiyatissa, that's again, you know, 500 BC, is recorded as sending pearls. And so definitely there's a very, very rich um, sort of regional literature around this. I think there's... Um, there's a really lovely book by uh, V.S. Arulraj and Victor uh, Rajamanikam, and it's a collection of medieval navigational material in Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, Malayalam, and they all have these beautiful references to the, you know, the luxuriousness um, of pearls, and um, very much echoing what you mentioned of Sangam literature, so the sort of Puranas of, of talking about pearls as, as linked to royalty or elite or um, beautiful, devout persons. And actually, I mean, you can look much further. So you could even look um, to Chinese historical sources, which talk about Gulf of Manar pearls coming from Muslim chiefs in, say, Kilakkarai, paying tribute in the 14th century to Chinese ships um, that are coming along the maritime Silk Road. So we might, you know, we can use Singhala Tamil, Pali for, for kind of closer contact, but um, we could also look, you know, for Persian, we know that Persian lapidaries or Persian texts about gems would talk about um, pearls from Ceylon or um, Arabic texts would make references to Sarandib pearls. Um, so definitely, I mean, if you were to mine the kind of linguistic evidence, it really does show you how far and extensive these um, early trade routes were. So I have to mention at this point for our listeners that Tamara had uh, generously shared a draft of her upcoming paper, provisionally titled, I want to say, uh, Seeing Like the Sea, a multi-species history of the Ceylon pearl fishery 1800 to 1925 in advance. Uh, so it was also a pleasure to read her other article titled Death at the Pearl Fishery in the Hypocrite Reader, issue 95 published in July 2020. I'll post links to both of these articles in the podcast notes as and when they are available in the public domain. So it is in that, in that context as well that I have a few uh, questions, uh, Tamara. Uh, so these, these uh, 
these articles also deal with the period that you just mentioned that you were interested in and this you know how the colonial encounter sort of creates changes in the pearl fishery that uh, that we still that are long lasting up to the date probably but could you tell us a bit about do you have any background on how was pearl fishery carried out before that and uh, based on the approach you've taken in the article as well which is more on the agency of non-humans agency of nature and so on would you say that would it be fair to say that these uh, oysters these pearls were in some way um, they were in some way um, setting off a set of changes that leads to cultural and economic connections across the region mm. i mean to to answer the the easier question first on um, what uh, how the fishery is organized in pre-colonial times so a fishery would fall loosely under the sovereignty of um, a ruling or local dynasty so you might the fishery might be say under the nayakas from madurai or the pandeyas from korkai and generally and this stays constant throughout many centuries what would happen is that local caste groups like the parava would pay a percentage of their revenue or a sort of tribute for permission to fish to the ruler so um, you would pay the nayaka of madurai a certain sum and in return for that sum you would be allowed to conduct the fishery keep them the majority share of the profits and you might also um you might also give some profits over to the ruler and maybe one thing to say here and this is not exclusive to the gulf of mannar but there is very very intense competition to have this kind of loose hold over the fishery so whether that's you know chola kingdoms coming to try to seize control of the fishery or um dynasties coming from places like sitavaka or kandy on the island fighting for rights over the fishery this is a very um hotly contested commodity for uh, local dynasties there is a, a very good historian of the pearl fishery samuel ostroff and he describes the the gulf of manna space as one that is comprised of a patchwork of rights and by that he means in my reading that there are multiple competing claims to the rights of the sea so in addition to rulers loosely exerting this kind of um, um expecting tribute from the pearl fishery another big one to mention is the rights that um local kovils or temples on both sides of the gulf of mannar have to pearls coming from the from the sea so we might think about kovils or temples like rameswaram tirupalani tiruchendur um and these temples would often have we know that they presented even in the colonial era they would present copper plate inscriptions from say the nayaka of madurai saying that the temple is allowed a certain number of boats to fish tax free so they were entitled to a share of the pearls without paying the tax um to have boats um on the water so for instance when um in 1828 the fishery um the fishery is being run in the context of european empire we know that there were boats that came from a kovil in pulukottai and said we are entitled to tax free boats 
And even if there are European empires here, we still want our customary rights to fish. So maybe one thing to say is that European colonialism comes very early to the Gulf of Manar. It doesn't start with the British. And I think that's important because it marks it as a very different industry to the way, say, coffee or tea is run in Ceylon. Um, and that a lot of these modes of um, turning to local communities who have very specialized expertise in either maritime labor or knowledge of the banks, how to fish for pearls. This is a, a, a long, a long running tradition, um, which the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British are very much relying on pre-existing, pre-existing ways of organizing fishery labor and the extraction of pearls. And then, I mean, the second question about the non-human and if the non-human shapes these forms, certainly there are historians or anthropologists who have taken this view. So, you know, Marcus Wink, for example, who has written on the Parava, says, describing, you know, 17th century ways of interacting um, both Muslim and um, Catholic caste groups in the, on the coast. He, he says they have a kind of ecological agency. And by that, I take that to mean a combination of specialized skill and knowledge in particular environments, in this case, a submarine oceanic um, fisheries-based knowledge that then can be bartered out to um, regional powers in certain kinds of ways. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, again, um, I mean, I see your ambivalence with the uh, non-human agency part, so I, I'm not going to push on it. But I am very interested in the Paravar uh, caste you mentioned, um, partly because it's also my own research interest about the position of fishers as a caste group. But also, uh, could you tell us a bit about this caste or community and the other um, community groups that you mentioned in the region? What were their identities? Were they primarily fishers in terms of if you look at caste as an occupation thing? Or were they traders or boatmen? Were they seen as or did they identify as an artisanal or trading or agrarian caste? Or did these categories even make sense in that historical geography you're looking at? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean... I'm not an anthropologist of the Parava, and there's there's very good work by, say, Patrick Roche or Susan Bailey on this. My sense from reading the scholarship and talking with members of the community is that this is um, a group that very, very early has an identity as a cohesive jati or caste. So there is strong internal cohesion. There is consensus on what leadership within the jati looks like. So that would take the form of the Jati Talaiwan. So the, the, we might sort of translate this as, as caste headman or a, a village elder. And then a kind of tiered hierarchy um, below, below the headman. So this is a Jati that is specialized very, very early on. Um, it's difficult to date. Um, it's difficult to date precisely when the Parava become occupationally specialized. We know that, say, if I was to look at um, medieval um, Tamil texts, there are references to the Parava going out to sea in various kinds of um, various kinds of vessels, hunting sharks, um, 
pearl fishing. So they are loosely fishermen, pearl divers, fish dealers, seabone traders, settled in villages from, say, Kilakkarai to Kanyakumari, even up the Kerala coast on the opposite side, in fact. Um, in my period, so if we take, say, uh, a year like 1860, there's a total population of about 30,000 from, say, colonial censuses. And by 1915, about 50,000. Um, for this community, one one thing anthropologists will always point out is there's a very notable conversion in the 1530s and 1540s when the coast is um, nominally under Portuguese control or interacting with the Portuguese is that there's a mass conversion to Roman Catholicism. So this makes them a Roman Catholic rather than a Hindu jati or caste. Um, and as, as we know, anyone who has been to the region knows, I mean, this... this um, Catholicism marks these communities very, very deeply. So below the Jati Talaiwan, you have subordinate notables, Adapans, Patangati, Maupans, um, and then other dependent communities, barbers or washermen, what what have you. Um, I mean, I, I think of, say, you know, I, I know Susan Bailey writes about Christianity as a, a kind of caste lifestyle for the Parava. So there's you know, very famous churches, like the Church of, you know, Our Lady of Snows, very important processions where statues of the Virgin will be unveiled, processed around. Um, caste leadership is usually hereditary, so the Jati Talaiwan will be passed down, um, usually in the same line, but not always. Um, and I guess in my case, what I'm interested is in is how these sort of specialized skills are then um, rented or leased out based on who the controlling powers in the region are. And that there really is, um, there is something about the maritime mobility of the Parava that is um, almost impossible for colonial powers to pin down. So, you know, I always think of, of reading documents in uh, in the archives in Chennai where you know, the Parava community will say um, somebody did something in the community. So there was a, a Hindu procession and they uh, processed a goddess who was not a Catholic goddess in front of our huts. And we were very upset by this. So they get onto the boats and they leave. So they leave Dutch territory and they go to British territory. And this kind of maritime mobility, both on the, um, the Indian, the Madras side, but also on the Ceylon side is very, very difficult for the colonial state to regulate because they're terrified that um, the community will get into their boats and leave. So, you know, I always think of um, one very violent incident where the, the British are trying to control the community at the pearl fishery. And what they do is they order all the rudders of the boats to be confiscated so that even if um, the community is able to get into their boats, they're not able to steer. So they're not able to leave. Well, that's so interesting because even today, I think there's some residue of this idea of um, fishers as uh, residing outside of official control in some ways. Also, the attention that you drew to the, you know, the way that the ocean sort of models these territorialities of colonial control between Portuguese and the British and so on. Yeah, that's also fascinating uh, for me. Your story mentions the Adapanar. He is the sort of the, you know, the the 
vignette that anchors your article and he's the one that adapanar is the one who's diving for pearl and he's embodying knowledge passed down through generations as you narrate and you just mentioned that adapanar wasn't really a paravar headman right like he is more like someone subordinate almost to the paravar head so wh- wh- where does that put the uh, you know the the occupation of diving itself in the social hierarchy Uh, or rather specifically pearl diving and was there a difference between the kind of status afforded to pearl and chunk diving and so on it's a it's a really really good question um it is a prestigious um i think maybe one of the difficulties particularly for dealing with the 19th century is where we are reading from so i think there is a a very orientalist colonial perspective of um diving as being um an occupation that is not one to be celebrated that is um may, perhaps the the immediate association is not one of prestige which i think is very different to the categories that we will get if we read from inside the community out or if we read different kinds of material so if we read um say historical material on um you know boldness and bravery you asked me earlier i know a question on legends and you know i i think in some ways it's a more interesting question not to say um is a legend true or not but also to see what does the legend do in a place like this so for instance you know one one story i've written about is the story of um a princess or the queen alirani and we know her story that she is a tamil queen who appears in dravidian so tamilian reworkings of the 4th century sanskrit epic the mahabharata and then there's a 16th century poem say the ali arasani malai that gives us more details about her life but regardless of whether she existed as a historical figure or not what we do know is that up into the 19th and early 20th centuries in 1912 1906 um colonial officials are still recording that divers are telling stories about her so there's a surveyor who goes to a town on the the northwestern coast called um Kalpitiya and the men who live there diving for chanks they tell him you know this this um this place didn't used to open out into the ocean but there was a queen called queen alirani and she lived here and one day a great flood came and buried her palace under the waves and that's when kalpitiya became opened out to the ocean um that's one story or you know we know there was another official who's in marichikadai again touring the fisheries and the divers point him to the shells i mean even today if you if you walk along the beach you can still see the remains because there are so many millions of discarded oyster shells on the beach um but they point the shells out to to the official and they say you know these are the great queen's fisheries where we used to pay tribute to her so i, I you know i think stories like this are um they show us very different kinds of associations with pearling so associations linked to royalty linked to um say great and illustrious local dynasties and um, it's a very different kind of association to the kinds of associations that we might get even if we just wanted to narrate a story of 
colonial attempts to extract maximum profit or um, violence against the environment or violence against bodies. I think there is something in our attempts to tell those kinds of stories where we might also then lose the fact that this um, this is an activity that can mean many things to many people and it can be deeply oppressive and deeply violent, but it can also be um, it can also be an activity of pride where one has skills that one is proud of and able to um, to you know to show off and to pass down to your son or to your um, to your nephews. It makes you think about these legends in a different way. And thank you for uh, pointing that out. Well, you you reference, I think, the story from the Tiruvalayadal Puranam yes. of um, yeah of of how the sura becomes the the what do you call it the shark becomes yes. a key player almost in this negotiation between um, the colonial authorities and the pearl fishers. Is 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 that the right story, Tamaraj? Yes. So I'm not. Yes, no, no, no. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's that literature is, if I'm not wrong, about from the 16th century or so, as well. So, is there any? Uh, did some of these narratives, did some of these stories also arise in the context of the colonial intrusion, or in the context of, let's say, a change in power and how to uh, respond to that? I I think I think so definitely and I mean again we have the problem of multiple ways of reading this space both of reading quote unquote in scare quotes nature or animals but also of reading people so as I explain in the article one of the big problems for British administrators who are told your job now is to go and manage the fishery and to make sure that we have a very successful fishery where we have a very good harvest and we make um, we make many thousands of rupees or pounds, however you want to convert it, is that very often when divers are at sea, they will say um, there's a shark in the water. And, you know, at, at big fisheries, we're talking about 200 sailing craft and about 2,000 divers at the biggest fisheries. And what happens is that if one boat sounds the alarm, um, many of the divers will get back onto the boats and say, we're not going to fish today because there is a diver. And one problem that the British have is that none of the European men are in the water. So it is only, um, say, Marikaya Muslim divers or Tamil Parava divers who are underwater. So when they say there's a shark in the water, we will not get into the water, Um Colonial officials are really, really confounded for how to deal with this. So they'll say, oh, the divers are lying or they made it up. It's um, it's an excuse because they're lazy or because they don't want to work. So on the one hand, you have colonial ideas about the shark. So the shark is something made up by the divers. Then you have divers' ideas about the shark, which might both be apprehensive um, but also intimate in terms of having long histories of battling or defeating sharks or multiple encounters with sharks, like the, the Tamil literature you mentioned. Um, and then, I, you know, I would add there's, there's also the, the, the shark um, who is 
potentially in ways we may or may not know aware of the fact that there's vast kinds of activity happening on the reef and the shark is driven by different patterns whether those are feeding patterns or mating patterns um something that brings him into the same orbit as um men diving for their livelihoods as european officials insisting that maximum profit is extracted and so there are multiple kinds of narratives that we can anchor around say a shark showing up at the pearl fishery and i think to to your question definitely this is um i think that the narratives change based on the conditions of rule so i think if you do have a colonial state that is forcing men to go out to sea even when they do not want to i think the shark can be a very effective bargaining chip um and then you know i mean i would always maintain there are also i think rationales that are not the state so why is the shark there in the first place um then those are, are narratives that maybe are ones we can't get at so easily from the kinds of archives we use Mm. so uh, i think it was probably in the same article the hypocrite uh, reader one there's a line there that reads um, i start quote the work sites concentrated a large number of bodies 15000 to 30000 people at the uh, largest fisheries within an enclosed and highly regulated camp workers shared water facilities for drinking cooking and bathing end quote so this sounds a lot like contemporary contract work that happens in factories especially in marginalized geographies especially in you know global south scs and so on which aren't very well monitored in terms of in terms of labor rights so where would you place this kind of a camp as you call it in a developmental trajectory or even in a rural to urban spectrum because like the reason i'm i'm reminded of a rural to urban spectrum is also because many of these Uh, factories that I, that i and probably many other listeners are also familiar with are often in the outskirts of the city and so on and and it does act as kind of a camp almost and i know that you also mentioned that the analytic of the camp itself is something that you were interested in developing back into a plantation so uh, what kind of labor and nature culture relationships characterizes this camp type of settlement mm. Yeah, I mean I think one thing to say perhaps initially is that there is a very deliberate um architecturing I don't think that's a verb there is a very deliberate um aim to control the architecture of this space. So what at least in the British case they will do is um a few weeks before um the pearl fishery so they've gone out with the adapanas they've decided um we can have a pearl fishery because there are many thousands of oysters they will circulate notices so they'll send a notice to kilakarai tutikuli madras um saying a pearl fishery is going to take place we are inviting merchants tenders fishermen boatmen to come and then in the two weeks or 10 days leading up to the fishery they will enlist local headmen to hire workers from the ceylon site to build the camp um and the camp is built with very temporary materials so you would use uh palm dried palm leaf kajan to make um to make huts to make um to make streets 
And there's a kind of attention in that this is a, a space that is very temporary, as I mentioned, particularly in terms of the building materials, um, but also an attempt at um, a sort of microcosm of the city. So the British were very proud that they had um, army barracks, a police station, in some cases, even uh, a mock courthouse. They would have a temporary jail, um, a kachari, so a, an office where the British administrator and his clerks would sit. They would build giant kutus or um, enclosures where the oysters would be brought and counted. Um, streets lined with boutiques to sell everything from bananas and rice to um, ice creams in one, one pearl fishery. Um, better houses for the merchants, less good houses for the divers. And so I think maybe if we're thinking about urban space or um, workspaces that people inhabit, the first is that this is one that is not constructed by those who arrive to labor. It is constructed for them. There is, I have found evidence of people maneuvering within the rules. So one thing that the British would do is they would set up different quarters for divers. So if you look at a map from say 1889, you can see that they would mark out one area as um, Tutukudi um, divers quarter. And then another one would be named Kilakarai Muslim divers quarters. And if Persian Gulf divers were coming from Kuwait, they would often put those divers because they were Muslim with the Kilakarai divers, um, Jaffna divers in another place. So segregated along geography, religion, caste, as we mentioned. Um, so very, very invasive, intensive attempts to uh, control this space. Um, I have read episodes of divers coming and saying, we are not happy with where our huts have been built or where you are telling us to live. Um, and then they would move. So I know what, in one instance, a group of Muslim divers who come from Kyle Putnam say, um, we don't like where you've built our houses, we want to be uphill. Um, so we'll move there and we'll set up our camp there. Um, I think a second thing that leads on very neatly from this is that it is built in some ways to be a prime site of surveillance. So I know there is um, an art historian at UCL called Natasha Eaton who calls it, a, I think she reads Foucault and calls it a heterotopia. So it's um, meant to be this kind of dystopian site that can be very, very tightly regulated. And the other historian I mentioned, Sam Ostroff, makes a similar argument. Um, but then again, as you, as you point out, I mean, this is a very diverse site that is crowded with people. So there's also many things that go on that the state is unable to regulate. So there are um, multiple, in some fisheries, 30 different establishments serving alcohol, so serving arak or coconut toddy. Um, and we know that divers and boatmen and merchants are mixing, they're talking, they're exchanging gossip. What's the price you're buying oysters for? How much are you offering to the British? Who found a good oyster? Who found a bad oyster? Where is the reef rich? Where is it not rich? So for me, I think one of the interesting things is kind of reading this space, you know, can we read from above? Can we read from below? And what is really hidden in these very schematic plans of the city um, or the camp rather? Um, and I think in part, the reason that this is a temporary camp is because the British are very anxious about 
migrants staying on. So there are, as soon as the pearl fishery is pronounced over, because there are no more oysters and the sale is finished, they will dismantle the camp. Um, they will clean the streets. They will break down all the houses. And in part, that's an attempt to maintain this as a liminal space, so a space that doesn't turn into a kind of urban conglomerate with permanent settlement. And I think that very much has to do with the nature of migrant labor and um, a sense of reduced political capital in terms of what these laborers would be able to demand for themselves from the government in Colombo. So in my mind, there is a kind of a sort of forced construction of um, seasonality or, or um, the sort of space being closed down as a way to prevent these kinds of claim making. To me, it sounds also like they weren't uh, just, it wasn't just a forced construction of seasonality, but also like a, like a kind of bordering that's happening there. To me, our initial discussions about the Gulf of Manar seemed like the Gulf wasn't really a Gulf in the sense that we talk about today, uh, that it isn't something that was dividing, but rather it was it would be read as like a larger agglomeration. But uh, you also mentioned this tension that, that's happening because of migrations and segregations that you just uh, told us about in, in with a line in the article that says, Disease also had a particular salience at the Manar pearl fishery because most of the workforce were migrants from the opposite coast. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about like what kind of bordering uh, action was this really enabling and um, was the Gulf really a Gulf in the pre-colonial era? And would you say that the colonial uh, intrusion sort of built these borders in some ways or even divisions in some ways? I would definitely. I am um, hardly the first person to make this argument. I um, I think of, for example, there's a historian called Eric Meyer who has uh, looked at labor circulation between India and Ceylon in the sort of long, long durée, long time period, and he calls he calls the movement of fishers. He has this uh, very evocative line. He says it's a a pendulum like. Uh, elastic migration, so like the kind of swinging pendulum of a clock, um, fishes will move, then they will move back, then they will move again. Um, and I think that speaks to kinds of patterns of mobility that predate um, particular ways of thinking about sovereignty or territorialization. Certainly the notion that sort of clean lines drawn on the map um, mark one space off from another is not true if you're following a shoal of some kind of fish that then has ventured too far south or too far north. As we know, um, with the the fisher struggles and the, the kind of constant uh, arrests and imprisonments of Indian fishers on this side and um, Sri Lankan fishers on the other side, this is very much the time in which these kinds of ideas are hardening. Um, certainly it doesn't exist prior to the late 19th century in the same way. Um, and I guess one of the things I, I was interested in in the article is that based on the way we think about medicine, based on how that changes, where we police migration also changes. So when I have read um, colonial medical officers writing about cholera 
1825 in Tutukudi, they will say um, cholera has struck the camp. Several men have died. Um, this is a result of um, miasmas, bad air. Um, and so this is a time where we haven't yet had Louis Pasteur and the discovery of um, the ideas of thinking about um, diseases as transmitted in microbes and the fact that humans might be hosts. And But by the late 19th century, once you have these kinds of um, advances in bacteriology, suddenly the body of the migrant, it's not the air, it's not the marsh, it's not the miasma, it's, oh, um, X person is now the vector of disease, and that's what we need to be policing. So that's when you get the first immigration centers set up on um, Rameswaram Island, Pomban Island, on the Manar side, and then a concern to check, have you done a health check before people come? Um, have you taken people's temperature? Have migrants been sprayed with chemicals? Has the camp been disinfected? Um, and of course, I mean, one of the things that the fishery record makes very evident is that if there is an economic exigency, then the British are very willing to waive these kinds of requirements. So in one year where they don't have enough divers to work, they say, okay, nobody coming from Kilakarai needs to do the medical test um, because they really needed them to make money. And so um, definitely disease, def definitely disease, disease is very much a part of why particular kinds of control of um, movement are implemented in this space. You mentioned that the idea of striking is, is an action that's uh, uniquely available to workers, but not necessarily to other uh, marine life or even to the human body itself. Like uh, you just uh, described to us, it's it's often things like disease or, you know, almost inadvertent um, agents that shapes um, that shapes you know further social and economic changes as far as the human body or marine life is concerned it's not the active act of uh, striking uh, this seems to me very much like a posthumanist approach um, although you were a bit ambivalent about it in the beginning so can you explain your approach a bit as to you know how, what exactly is the is the Character, characterization you make of uh, human will to a certain extent in these uh, in these spaces and uh, how far does an unwilling agency play into what you do? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question and I will steal your line, unwilling agency, because I like that. Um, I think I'm loath to use the word striking when discussing actors, actants, whatever we want to call it, um, because it leads into debates on um, debates in animal studies, which I think maybe historians are not the best place to answer. So on consciousness, on agency, on um, epistemologies of being. And I, I think there's a place for asking that kind of question. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the question I'm trying to answer. I think maybe for me, a more useful concept is, um, well, there are, there are two concepts, I guess I would point. One is um, the concept that the anthropologist Anna Lohenhaupt-Singh uses, which is the idea of friction. Um, so this 
I think is a useful way to talk about um, structures of power. I guess the danger in neglecting the environment completely is to say this is only about the colonial state and divers. So if we do want to bring in the sea or the seabed or the oysters, then how do we do that, I guess, is, is the question in terms of methodology. So the idea of friction is, in a sense, that if there are these kind of great designs, that they don't run smoothly. So Singh says, you know, capitalism doesn't work like a well-oiled machine. It's, it's a machine where there's friction and things don't run and they get stuck and they jar. Um, and for me, the fact that, you know, the British are... In, in a good year, pearling generates more revenue than any other cash crop coming from Ceylon, be that tea, coffee, cinnamon. Um, but many years, there are no oysters at all because they've been overfished or the climatic conditions are not right or it's El Nino or a La Nina year. Um, so that there are kind of natural limits to growth um, which lie outside of human will or human agency. And that those are also limits that are worth attending to. I mean, I, I think if there is a question of, you know, what does it mean to write history in the age of the Anthropocene, it has to be, well, how do we hold on to the kind of the good work we are able to do and that we have strived to do for so many years to think about inequalities in terms of caste, race, gender, um, empire, but also to, to acknowledge that we don't exist in a vacuum that is purely anthropos or purely human, and that maybe there are other kinds of effects or, um, yeah, that, that there are effects that are, um, that there are more than human effects in the world and that we can describe those effects without making consciousness claims, um, at least in, in my case, without making consciousness claims, I think. There may be people who are able to do that work well. Um, I think my work is to say that there are different kinds of agents in the world, different kinds of ways of being in the world, and that those limits look different um, and have all sort of operate as an assembly um, or a... Um, a sort of set of constituent parts that then affects the outcomes that we all have to inhabit. But I'm also interested in pushing this a bit further to ask about what exactly is nature in this uh, context then? Because uh, when it comes to the pearl fishery, the way you described it in the article and to us today in the podcast, is it, it's quite a well-oiled uh, machine in the sense that there's a lot of attempts to control. And of course, there are factors outside of your control, like in any other, you know, industry or agrarian um, project. But it is still somehow there is a sense of there being lesser control here than in if you were trying to establish a coffee plantation or a rice plantation even. So, um yeah, so from that point of view, is is there more nature in this sense or is there more uncontrollable nature in this context? Yeah, I think that my answer is yes. And I would perhaps point to medium or terrain as a more useful way to distinguish rather than, you know, all the dichotomies we've discussed today. So urban, rural, nature, culture, scientific, sacred, um, there is something about being underwater and the ocean that is much less accessible. 
So when I'm thinking about terrain or medium, I'm thinking about the sh- being on the shore compared to being at sea, being underwater compared to being on the decks of a vessel. I think that it is possible to some extent to be purely materialist and to say human beings cannot breathe underwater. Um, we cannot um, walk on the seabed unassisted, or we could not in the 1860s, um, unassisted on the seabed the way you would through a paddy field or um, in the plains or in the mountains. So that there is something very particular about um, the aqueous medium in terms of pressure, in terms of temperature, in terms of depth, um, in terms of bodies inhabiting that space in the absence of technology. So I think if there is a sense that this is a space that, as you say, has more nature in it, um, it is in part a result of a particular kind of um, terrain or medium. And what is interesting then is how is that space inhabited um, and in what ways? So one of the arguments I'm keen to make is to look at how the pearl fishery in particular shapes our relationship to the sea. And I think in part because of this sense of more nature or more inaccessible or more resistant, whatever we want to use, there is a very strong push to unravel that and to try to break that whether that is technologically, so by using a dredge, by using a diving suit, by using a, a what the British call at one point an underwater periscope, um, an underwater telescope rather, um, or whether that is um, nascent, the nascent discipline of marine biology. So setting up the first marine biological laboratory in Gaul and exploring the oyster in tanks to say we need to know how it lives how it reproduces um, because all of these things are hidden from us so I think in part the the strength of that response to unravel is um, a reaction to a particular kind of terrain that feels um, that feels as if it yields less easily um, to the tools of the state that's a good way of putting it that it yields less easily to the tools especially of the state. But uh, I'm also intrigued by what you said about knowledge, that it's, it's also a less knowable space in some ways, or at least it's uh, the knowledge about it is less widely uh, accessible. And that brings me to the last idea I want to explore, which is on um, the urban. So to, there's almost like the sea as well as nature to a certain extent are placed in opposition to the urban in popular imagination and policy and so on. Although there is more of now an attempt to cultivate nature in cities, uh, in South Asian cities in terms of parks and you know ecological services and so on. But the sea itself, as well as the people who labor in it usually and who are expected to know about it, that is the fishers, uh, are often thought to be like thought to have no place in the city anymore uh, but from a cultural history point of view that you know we discussed a bit of today the oceanic spaces were highly urban spaces in the past right i don't know if this is too much of a stretch uh, looking at it from your disciplinary point of view but would you be willing to comment on what does the urban mean uh, in this context 
I think it's a great question and I think it's also one that I mean I I do wonder you know Sunil Amrit for example is working on port cities in the age of the anthropocene and so I wonder as sea levels rise and we have these mega cities around the bay of Bengal that are um newly imperialed whether there will be a kind of meshing or a reassessment of what it means to think about the urban and um the oceanic or water and the urban maybe in part my approach might even be the other way around so to say how much of the ocean is there always in spaces that are urban right i mean i think one challenge as you mentioned earlier is where does the geography of the pearl fishery start and end um so is it just the town or the temporary camp in marichikadai in ceylon or does it also extend to the villages that the fishers go back to so um all the the sites on and towns on um, on the opposite coast or could we say that it also extends to the peta in kalambo where the gem merchants are does it go further to bombay which is the world's emporium of pearls does it then tenuously also go to london or paris i think of recently i, I was reading another um, an oceanic historian well anthropologist uh, nitra samarthana and she um, she thinks about whether those who work in the gem trade whether the ocean actually extends to the pits of the mines in um, in sri lanka or in to the bottom of the gem mine because these gems are then going to go across oceans and so i think in part i would answer the oceanic is is always in the urban in in some way or another and um i think sites like the camp are particular configurations of the urban um that serve some of the functions that we have um that we have described but um as you say i'm i'm not very compelled by the sort of neat dichotomy between um what is a city and non city or, or rural and urban and i would say that the inflection points of what is maritime or, or outside of the city are perhaps not as clear as we might think i think that's a great note to uh, end on uh, that you said uh, that line that i really liked was um, there's always the oceanic in the urban it seems like something great to build on further as well for both of us <laughs> yeah, absolutely thank you so much for participating in the podcast tamara i've uh, really enjoyed taking the deep dive as it were with you into the pearl and chong fisheries in the gulf of mannar many thanks also to our listeners who have along with us taken interest in the specific geography do check out the links below for the research papers and articles that our guests have shared with us if you are interested in further discussion do write to me at n.ramesh@lse.ac.uk at